coming up on The Exam Room. How strong is the connection between diet and Alzheimer's disease compared to genetics and Alzheimer's? Well, you know, a decade or two decades ago, we really thought it was all genes and old age. If you had the genes and then as you would reach older age, they would start to to affect you. And uh, that was really pretty much it. But the turning point really came when certain studies that had been in progress for quite some time, tracking certain variables in life, what you eat, how much you exercise, and other things. As it started to become clear that in exactly the same way as heart disease could have been predicted by a high cholesterol level, by smoking, by high blood pressure, the same seems to be true with Alzheimer's disease. So what's the exact proportion of the role of genes versus the role of lifestyle factors. We don't exactly have a proportion, but it does look like probably the majority of cases of Alzheimer's disease could either be prevented or substantially delayed by factors that we can control. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Naperville, Illinois, Tallahassee, Florida, and Sydney, Australia. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 61 of season 6, number 457 overall. And today, we will be focusing on Alzheimer's disease, a chronic illness that affects more than 6 million Americans. And sadly, that is a number that is expected to more than double over the next quarter century. So our goal is to put the power of prevention into your hands and to show you how to keep a sharp mind as you get older and why that may just begin with the food that you're eating. So we are going to try to keep your brain in tip-top shape with five powerhouse brain-boosting foods and the foods that can help lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease and prevent cognitive decline into your golden years. And sharing those five foods with us today is our friend, a renowned doctor, a nutrition expert whose family has also been personally touched by this disease like so many others. Dr. Neil Barnard is here with us on the exam room this week. He joined me actually on the exam room live. And we also get into talking about the latest Alzheimer's drugs to hit the market and the connection between alcohol and Alzheimer's risk. Also supplements and olive oil and Alzheimer's disease and whether we may ever get to a point where we can say that Alzheimer's is curable. Today's episode of The Exam Room Live is powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit them online right now at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Time now to put Alzheimer's under the microscope here on the exam room. 
and five foods to boost brain health with Dr. Neil Barnard and some other foods that you may want to avoid. Great to see you, Chuck. Before we get to those five foods, let me ask you, generally speaking, how strong is the connection between diet and Alzheimer's disease compared to genetics and Alzheimer's? Well, you know, a decade or two decades ago, we really thought it was all genes and old age. If you had the genes and then as you would reach older age, they would start to to affect you. And uh, that was really pretty much it. But the, the turning point really came when certain studies that had been in progress for quite some time, tracking certain variables in life, what you eat, how much you exercise, and other things, as it started to become clear that in exactly the same way as heart disease could have been predicted by a high cholesterol level, by smoking, by high blood pressure, the same seems to be true with Alzheimer's disease. So what's the exact proportion of the role of genes versus the role of lifestyle factors. We don't exactly have a proportion, but it does look like probably the majority of cases of Alzheimer's disease could either be prevented or substantially delayed by factors that we can control. All right, let's talk about those factors, beginning with food. And so let's get those top five. What are your top foods, Dr. Barnard, for preventing Alzheimer's disease? Okay, top of the list is a food that everybody knows about, but people tend to neglect, and that is the berry group. Blueberries, strawberries, raspberries. When researchers have looked at people who consume the most berries, what they discover is they're getting something called anthocyanins. That's uh, the pigment that makes blueberries blue or makes grapes sort of a dark red color. Anthocyanins are also the, the coloring in the autumn leaves. So it's sort of nature's painting box. What, what matters about them is that they are antioxidants and they knock out free radicals. Free radicals are probably the damaging part of what's hitting the brain. Researchers have found that they are not only good uh, probably for, re- for reducing the risk of Alzheimer's, but let's say a person is in the first stages. They have a condition we call mild cognitive impairment. You're still yourself, but you can't, you're having trouble balancing your checkbook uh, more than usual. Your names are dropping out. Words are dropping out. Like you're trying to think of the name of an actor in a film that you just saw. You can't think of it. Uh, that happens to everybody from time to time. But if it's happening all day long, every single day, and the names and the words are dropping out, that's mild cognitive impairment. Researchers at the University of Cincinnati showed that if blueberry juice or even grape juice that you get uh, at the grocery store will to an extent, reverse the mild cognitive impairment. And this was seen in three months in people who would consume a cup in the morning and a cup at night, or about two cups uh, of their respective juice. So stay tuned for that. That's berries. That's number one. Number two, green leafy vegetables. And whether you're talking about spinach or kale or collards or, or even lettuce that you might put in a salad, green leafy vegetables do seem to be associated in epidemiologic studies with less risk of developing Alzheimer's. And the cool thing about it is most people don't get much of any so that a person who has even one or two servings a day has a measurable benefit compared to the people who aren't getting any. So more vegetables, less Alzheimer's disease. Number three, vitamin E. Not in pills, but vitamin E in its natural source. Uh, If you look at a sesame seed, Inside that little seed or a sunflower seed or an almond, there are traces of vitamin E. 
And the more people get vitamin E, the more their risk of, of developing Alzheimer's drops. And in the Chicago Health and Aging Study, they found that uh, those people getting more vitamin E tended to cut their risk by about 50%, completely apart from anything else they would do with their diet. So because seeds and nuts are fatty, I suggest going for about one small handful a day. That's about one ounce. Pour them into your hand. By the time it hits your fingers, that's, that's more than an ounce. So just that little bit will do us. Uh, number four, vitamin B12. And here, don't neglect your vitamin B12. People who are deficient in this vitamin are at higher risk of dementia overall. And it's the easiest thing to do to go to the store, pick up a supplement. The amount your body needs is 2.4 micrograms. All the supplements have more. So get one that's 100 or 200 micrograms. Fine, that'll take care of you. And my fifth one is actually not a food, but exercise. Researchers at the University of Illinois showed that when people lace up their sneakers and do a brisk walk 40 minutes, three times a week, not, not only does it seem to reduce the likelihood of getting dementia later, it also re re reverses some of those earlier signs. Uh, memory tests go better, but the hippocampus, which is at the center of the brain, and tends to, to shrink over time. And it, because it's the center of memory, that's not good. You can show that it actually, that shrinkage is actually reversed when people uh, exercise. And it doesn't have to be a marathon, 40 minute brisk walk three times a week. Those are my five. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, sticking with exercise here for a minute, I love the fact that uh, it doesn't have to be the marathon. I think that's the key. Exercise can be so intimidating to the person who's been sedentary for a long time. So just knowing that a walk will do a lot of good, I think, is really kind of comforting and reassuring. Just for the purposes of really getting specific and, and clarity here, uh, when you say a brisk walk, is are we talking about walking to the point where you can basically still carry on a conversation, but you're not panting? What is a brisk walk in, in your definition there? You want it to be um, fast enough so that you can feel your pulse elevating a little bit. You don't have to take your pulse, but you can stop and take it. So you, you do need to have your heart beating a little bit faster but not, you're work, not working so hard that you can't speak and you're really just huffing and puffing. That's a brisk walk. Now, if you're up for doing more, great, do more, that's fine. Now, the way the University of Illinois researchers started this was interesting. They took sedentary people and they said, do a 10-minute walk three days a week. Then the following week, 15. And then the following week, 20 minutes. The following week, 25. You just add five minutes a week. So it's something just about anybody can do. And once you got up to a 40-minute brisk walk three times a week, that was the level that reversed brain shrinkage. All right. There's a couple other things I want to ask you about. Number one is iodine. I've heard uh, some people speculate that that also plays a role in cognitive function. And it is not uncommon whatsoever on the show for us to get questions about iodine sources on a plant-based diet. What do we know about that connection? It's an important connection. The, uh, the, the role of iodine is making thyroid hormone. Your thyroid at the base of your neck needs that iodine to make that hormone. If you don't have it, Everything shuts down, including brain function. You'll find that your mood is really going south and that, that your uh, cognition is not what it should be. And this is important because iodine is not in a lot of foods naturally. It's added to salt. So you have iodized salt. And a lot of people nowadays are having Himalayan salt or kosher salt or sea salt that may not be iodized. So read the label. If it's iodized, good. If you are unsure, uh, add 
sea vegetables to your diet, the nori wrap on your cucumber roll, um, or the wakame or the arame. These are common seaweeds that you'll get at any Japanese restaurant or health food store. If you find a way to bring them into your routine, they are a really rich source of iodine too. There are also supplements that you can buy at the store, but uh, that, that's really the role of it. And I know that the thought of adding salt to uh, food can be um, a little bit confusing for some people. How much is too much? Should we be doing it at all? So you just mentioned iodized salt. Are we talking just a little pinch, a little shake at the table? How much are we talking here? Well, keep in mind, you do need some sodium in your diet. It's, it should not be avoided completely. There, There is a requirement that your body has for some sodium. It's an important electrolyte. Where people run into trouble is when they overdo it, as most Americans do. But if you have even about a third of a teaspoon of iodized salt, you're going to get a substantial amount of iodine. So you get that in the course of the day, you're going to be fine. But don't neglect our friends, the sea vegetables. They are kind of nature's really best source. Oh, yeah. I was I was enjoying some uh, New York uh, sushi while I was up there. The vegetable rolls are out of this world at some of those shops in New York, man. I'm telling you, so tasty. I also want to ask you before we open up the doctor's mailbag about mushrooms. Um, our colleagues and I have talked about them in the past, in particular, in terms of brain health as well. Uh, what can you tell us about mushrooms and cognitive function and possibly even a connection with Alzheimer's? Yeah, we're, mushrooms are sort of the, the big uninvestigated food. Up until recently, people just thought of them as something that grew in the shady area beside your house. But they have emerged in a couple of different ways. What got people's attention first was breast cancer. Uh, women consuming the most mushrooms have quite a substantial reduction in breast cancer risk. But also there has been a question as to whether or not mushrooms might be a natural source of vitamin D. Who knew? Uh, we think of vitamin D as hitting our skin, creating the vitamin D there. Then there's the, the thought that it may do the same, that sunlight on the mushrooms may create it. And then you have the mushrooms on your salad, and so you're getting the vitamin D in that source. That in turn then can support brain function. Uh, I do have a caveat though when it comes to mushrooms cook them. They should be cooked. If, you, if they are raw, in some of them, there are, believe it or not, natural traces of formaldehyde that will form in the uh, mushrooms. Cooking knocks that out. Well, that doesn't sound very appealing or appetizing, <laughs> formaldehyde. How do you like a little formaldehyde with your dinner tonight? No, thank you. Right, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can never have a raw mushroom, but for the most part, if you're eating them substantially, it's better to cook them. All right, let's go ahead and open up the doctor's mailbag. I want to grab a question. Uh, we have someone wondering about the association between alcohol and Alzheimer's risk, and that brings us to wine. This is a question from Mary, who says that the MIND diet, which is recommended for Alzheimer's prevention, does promote drinking red wine. You also mentioned that grape juice can have potentially beneficial effects earlier in the show. So what do we know about red wine in particular and to a broader extent? And also, what's the alcohol Alzheimer's connection? Yeah, uh, this has been something that's been really controversial. Alcohol in modest consumption does, in, in observational studies, it does seem to reduce the likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. Once use is more than moderate, a couple of drinks a day, then you start to see everything gets worse. Um, the more alcohol people drink, the more brain problems they have, and it's a contributor to dementia. So then that raises the question, well, what is it about that little bit of alcohol that might be helpful? What we suspect is that it's not the alcohol in the wine, but all of those wonderful pigments. There are compounds like resveratrol and others, and there are the anthocyanins that I mentioned earlier that are not only in the wine, but they're in the juice. 
So um, alcohol itself is probably not beneficial to the brain, but the things that go along with it probably are. And haven't there been studies recently um, that show kind of an issue of warning that really there is not much of an upside whatsoever in terms of health and alcohol consumption? We, yes. Uh, where we see the, the greatest concerns are with cancer risk, uh, because the list of cancers that are more common when people drink alcohol, it's getting longer all the time. And what really got everybody's attention was with breast cancer. Even having one drink a day for a woman who rea- relaxes at the end of the day with a glass of wine, her risk of breast cancer is higher than her friend who doesn't drink alcohol at all. So it's kind of made a lot of us have to take off our party hats a bit. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I'm really looking forward to Dr. Christy Funk's presentation uh, on breast cancer at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. She always does such an amazing job with that. So I, I just, I'm, I'm just salivating, waiting for, for the latest from her. Um, yeah. Let's do an exam room. We'll talk more about ICNM in just a little bit as well, Dr. Barnard. But let's do an exam room roll call real quick. We've got that global health turnout again today. Karen is watching in Germany. Kevin is in Burbank, California, having breakfast with us. Jen is in Edmonton, Alberta. Beth in Tulsa and Annette in Nova Scotia, Canada. Hello, everybody, wherever it is that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQs with us. Um, so cool. I love the the global impact. The studies or or the statistics statistics that I shared earlier in the show are about the U.S., but clearly, Dr. Barnard, Alzheimer's is a disease that does not know any sort of global boundary whatsoever. It really does impact every country around the world. Yes, it does. And, and yet at the same time, I have to think that as the world changes, as our, our diets change, things can sometimes change for the worse or for the better. And we've seen this really, if you look in Japan, and at the very southern end of Japan, look at Okinawa. In Okinawa, you have more centenarians than anywhere else. I mean, people who live to be 100. It's blue zone. And as McDonald's and so forth has moved into Okinawa, and their traditional diet, which amazingly enough is based on sweet potatoes, as you know, um, if it gets sort of hamburgerized, you see longevity being threatened and also uh, brain health being threatened as well. So it's a worldwide problem, but I think that when people are eating in the most healthful way, the way that perhaps many cultures used to and have given up a little bit. If they eat in a healthful way, they have a a measure of protection. All right. Uh, We were talking about sea vegetables a little bit earlier. Harvey is wondering about fish, though, and whether eating fish can cause Alzheimer's. He says he's a little bit confused uh, because he knows that omega-3s definitely are good for brain health. And when I got this question, Dr. Barnard, he sent this in ahead of time. I I was kind of doing a little bit of research in in advance, and I came across an article that was on Harvard Medical School's website, and it says fish was the single most important dietary factor in lowering the risk of cognitive impairment. Vegetables were second best and all other foods showed smaller insignificant effects. Um, I found that a little bit interesting. In your research and the studies that you've seen, what have you discovered as far as a connection between the two? The research is really to be continued, but bottom line, what people are thinking about with fish is that fish has long chain uh, omega-3s. That's EPA and DHA. Um, that's Those are good. You're, you know, they're they're used in in brain chemistry, and so that's important. But keep in mind, fish is a cocktail. Um, If you took fish fat, fish oil, sent it to a laboratory, they'd say, yeah, there is some DHA and some EPA in there. But there's also some saturated fat, which has the opposite effect. And it has some cholesterol in it too. Plus, fish is one of the dirtiest 
foods, if you will, because let's face it, fish in, live in what is increasingly becoming the human sewer, talking about the waterways and the, the oceans. And the little fish that is eaten by the bigger fish transmits mercury and other heavy metals up the food chain. So fish is kind of a cocktail. So if you say, well, what's, how can I take advantage of this in the best way? Take the, the good and get away from the bad. You can get DHA and EPA if you wish to as a supplement. And the old way of doing that was to get fish oil supplements. But as of, oh, maybe six or eight years ago, there have been vegan supplements made of DHA and EPA pure from entirely botanical sources. It's exactly the same thing, but there's no fish in there. There's no fishy smell. There's no heavy metals, uh, no saturated fat, nothing. Um, but let me, let me give a couple of cautions about this, though. Um, the, the argument for them is that research studies have suggested that people who are low in EPA and DHA may have higher risk of Alzheimer's. But the argument against them is that people who supplement, men who supplement for some reason that we've never figured out, have a higher risk of prostate cancer. The concern is that getting too much of these oils can increase cancer risk. So stay tuned. The last bit of advice I have is if you're going to supplement, you can do one thing first. You can uh, see if you are deficient. There are companies like Omega Quant that will send you a little card Put a drop of blood on it, mail it in. They'll tell you what your EPA and DHA levels are. If you're low, you can supplement. If you're high, you don't. So right now, uh, most people aren't necessarily recommending supplementation, but those are the issues that they're thinking about. Uh, you mentioned heavy metals there. That brings us to a question from Caden, who is wondering whether an iron supplement might be safe for Alzheimer's disease. She says that she's taking it right now under advice of her doctor. Okay. Um, iron is a driver of Alzheimer's disease um, overall for people in general. Um, iron, as you know, rusts. The fact that it rusts is a sign of oxidation. That triggers the production of free radicals in your body that can damage your brain. So we've known for quite some time that people have too much iron, too much copper, uh, too much aluminum in their, in their diets are at higher risk of dementias of various kinds, including Alzheimer's. So what do you do if you are low in iron? Well, the first thing your doctor is going to try to do is figure out, are you really low in iron? Your doctor will do tests like ferritin, total iron binding capacity. Your doctor can see if you're really low in iron. If you are, the next question is, why? Uh, are you a young woman with extra menstrual flow? Are you bleeding from your digestive tract? Are you losing blood somewhere? That's got to be job one to figure that out. And if you're just low for whatever reason, and you've ruled out these other things, First place to supplement is green leafy vegetables, loaded with iron in a healthy form. And then failing that, there are supplements that can be used. And if you are making up for a deficit, that's not dangerous. If you are pushing them just because you're feeling a little tired and you're, you're now overdosing on iron, that's where you're going to run into trouble. You know, I was reading an article that was published in the Washington Post over the weekend, and they were just touting um, the greatness that is the cast iron skillet, the old traditional cast iron skillet that it seems many, many, many kitchens around the country and around the world have. Um, what is your take on cookware? Is a cast iron skillet a, still a good idea, even though it may be one that's been passed down through the generations? It's a good idea to take a hammer and nail. <laughs> and pound it into your wall 
hang that cast iron skillet on there and admire how it looks. If it is your go-to pan that you're frying in every day, you're going to get iron in your food that you do not need. And it's going to increase your iron level. That's a bad thing. Uh, the nonstick cookware is really good now. Um, it's not the kind of Teflon that back in the 1970s would chip off into your food. Um, the new uh, pans, like a made-in pan, for example, that has that really good nonstick surface. They work. You don't have to use oil with them. And and uh, I would suggest using that in your cooking and leave the cast iron out. If, if your cast iron pan is something you're using once a month, no problem. Who cares? But if it's your go-to pan, you're getting too much iron. Let's take a question from Rich. Well, Rich at 1207 says he gets a three-pound bag of organic blueberries from Costco at a great price. Um, those are frozen. I'm familiar. I've got two bags in my freezer downstairs as well. Um, is eating a frozen blueberry going to give someone the same benefit as eating a fresh blueberry in terms of cognitive performance? Identical. Yep, exactly. And they're, they're very convenient. You know, blueberries, you got to hand it to the blueberry growers. I don't know how they managed to get them out on the truck and have them just at that right amount of ripeness because they don't last very long. It's a very short window. If I am frozen, your window is now like a couple of months that you can use them. So that's fine. Uh, the one thing I would do recommend with berries, they're a fragile plant. So that means that farmers often are kind of keen on pesticides to try to protect them from insects. If you can get them organic, so much the better. All right. Shelby's curious about what you may think of the latest Alzheimer's drugs that have been uh, just, uh, I guess, given the green light. Um, saw a lot of headlines about this in the last few weeks. What what do we know about them? Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, the drug is called Lakembi. And what researchers have done is they have tracked memory in, in people diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They track their memory, judgment, problem solving. And over time, these things will tend to decline. With Lakembi, they, they do decline more gradually. Uh, that's the good news. The asterisk on it is nobody thinks it's a cure. Nobody feels that the brain deterioration is going to stop. And the, the rate of decline, it's not a dramatic change, but it does slow it for many patients. So it's a, a, a good area to be continuing to look at. Kind of along that same front, Bobby is wondering about how a person might consider modifying their diet after they have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. What can be done to at least slow cognitive decline at that point? Well, if we're in the really early stages, the stage that we call mild cognitive impairment, that's where the research has really shown promise. I mentioned the exercise portion. These were people who had mild cognitive impairment. And they laced up their sneakers, 40-minute brisk walk three times a week. And you can show not just that you perform better on paper and pencil tests, but the hippocampus actually seems to be restored. The shrinkage of that organ that's the seat of memory actually reverses. And this will happen over about a year's time. Very, very exciting. I also mentioned anthocyanin-rich foods, berries. Uh, this research has been done with blueberries and with grapes. And this is the amount of about one cup twice a day of ordinary juices. Work fine. Those are the areas that really have been shown. But once the disease has passed beyond the stage of mild cognitive impairment, and it's not just memory, but you're seeing changes in all the, all the doma uh, uh, domains of cognition, that's where we, don't, we are not seeing reversibility yet. All right, we should talk a little bit about fat here. Um, I don't think anybody has made any secret that a really high-fat diet is probably not going to do you any favors in terms of cognitive function and your risk of Alzheimer's disease. However, 
it can become an interesting conversation when you look at the types of fat and the sources of fat. And to that end, we have a question from Louise, who is wondering whether the saturated fat that's found in coconuts and avocados also increases the risk of Alzheimer's. Very likely. Um, now, back in Chicago, starting in the late 90s, the Chicago Health and Aging Project got started. They tracked a lot of people, and the first thing that they reported on was saturated fat. And what they found is that those people in Chicago who were getting the most saturated fat, think dairy products, meat, those are the big, big sources. Uh, they had, oh, probably two to three times the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So we started to realize, okay, saturated fat, bad actor for the brain as well as for the heart. Uh, but are there botanical sources? You mentioned one, coconut oil. Avocados, not so much. Avocados have a fat that's very much like olive oil, not, uh, whereas the coconut fat is more saturated fat. But the other one you didn't mention is palm oil, and palm oil, heavily saturated. And the reason I'm singling this out is you will see coconut oil and palm oil used in a ton of products. You go to the store and the palm oil is added to peanut butter. That coconut oil is in the coconut milk that you might buy at the store. I suggest that people avoid them completely. Both coconut oil, palm oil, heavily saturated. Part of the problem, not part of the solution. All right, let's take a question now from Dawn, who apparently has herself a little sweet tooth like so many of us. Um, and Dawn is wondering whether there might be any sort of connection between sugar and Alzheimer's. What do we know there? Very likely not a, 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 an important one. Now, that said, diabetes, people who have diabetes have about double the risk of Alzheimer's compared to other people. But the question is, did sugar get them there? And we now know that, that diabetes really starts as insulin resistance, which starts as fat accumulation inside your muscle cells, fat accumulation inside your liver cells, so that these cells filled with fat can't pull the sugar out of your blood anymore. So the fatty foods that so many of us grew up with, that's really the genesis of, of diabetes. Now, sugar, when you're eating sugar, if you are insulin resistant, the sugar can't go where it's supposed to. It doesn't go into your cells and it builds up in the blood, but that really wasn't the origin of it. That said, there is sugar and then there's sugar. The sugar in an apple, in an orange, in a pear, those are natural sugars that nature thought, this is going to be good for you. That will power your brain in a good way, which is true. The sugar that is in sugar cane goes to the factory. They throw out all the fiber and all the pulp and they concentrate it and they put it in your Coca-Cola bottle. And that's that's really an unnatural source of hyperconcentrated sugar. It may not be a big driver of Alzheimer's, but it's just a whole bunch of calories you don't need. All right, let's see if uh, we can grab a couple of more here. There's uh, a few other good ones here. Rosa sent this one in ahead of time, also kind of looking at research here. Uh, she says that the Alzheimer's Association says to replace butter with healthy fats like olive oil and is wondering whether olive oil then might be considered an Alzheimer's-friendly food. Okay, well, they're, they're thinking right. Because let's say you're having butter. Well, dairy products are loaded with fat. And the fat is very heavily saturated fat. That's why butter is this solid thing. Um, it's the saturated fat that makes it that way. If you go to olive oil, the amount of saturated fat in the oil goes way down. It goes down to about 14%. That's good. But if you don't use butter or olive oil, you went to zero. So olive oil, better than butter but not as good as just a nonstick pan where you're not using oil at all. 
All right. And then uh, also, it seems like no matter what our health topic is on a particular week, somehow the old red versus white meat conversation comes up. And Tabitha is wondering what studies show in terms of the risk of Alzheimer's from eating red meat compared to white meat like chicken? Neither one is broccoli, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> they, 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 they really are both high in saturated fat. If you take a chicken leg and you take a hunk of roast beef, the saturated fat content of the two is about the same. If you pull the skin off the, the, the chicken leg, you will cut it some because a lot of the fat is there. But even so, about a quarter of all the calories in a skinless chicken breast, chicken breast throughout the dark meat, about a quarter of the calories are still fat. So uh-uh. um, the people are always trying to bargain with, is there some kind of meat that isn't, isn't really so unhealthy? The answer is they're all part of the problem. Interesting question from James. We were just talking about Alzheimer's medication. James is wondering whether it's true that almost all of the successful Alzheimer's trials that we hear that have been conducted on animals are absolutely big-time failures when you try to translate that to humans. What do we know there? It's been a huge problem. Um, researchers have tried to create a road model of Alzheimer's disease, um, a mouse model, for example. And then you try to come up with some kind of crude way of judging their memory. Do they remember some task that they were trained to do? And then researchers have tried to find a compound, a candidate drug of some kind that will affect these measures. And exactly what the questioner said, what James said, is that uh, things that look promising in these rodent models have just crashed and burned in once you do a human trial, which has really strongly pushed people toward a very different kind of research. As you probably know, you can now create neurological structures on the lab bench without a mouse at all. These so-called um, brain-on-the-chip kind of things. Uh, there's a whole new technology about creating neurological structures where we can test compounds on them directly. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But we really clearly do need to get away from the animal trials. They are expensive. They're obviously cruel. And you invest so much time and energy in something that ends up being a dead end. Uh, it's really tragic to see the waste of resources. Yeah, I remember doing a show with one of our colleagues where we talked about that and human relevant methods of research and just how much more quickly they can bring uh, some uh, drugs to market and at a much lower cost because there's <laughs> you're not wasting your time, your effort and energy with these other models that just wind up being complete failures. And I believe that there's a statistic on our website, Dr. Barnard, uh, where we're talking about roughly like 98, 99% of these Animal trials with Alzheimer's do not translate whatsoever into human success. And that, again, I mean, that's a huge number. So when James says almost all of them, like 98, 99%, he's spot on there. Yes. And, and this is for kind of obvious reasons. Um, the, if you compare an animal's behavior to human behavior, if you compare their neurological features to human neurological features, there are similarities, but there are also a number of differences. And then when you look at how they may metabolize a compound that you feed to them or that you infuse intravenously, they metabolize these things differently as well. And their toxicities are often very different. So it's been a, a huge problem of translation and it's ended up uh, being a pretty expensive lesson that that's really not the way that you want to invest your research dollars. 
I think that we should probably organize another show for that in the future. Uh, that was just a really fascinating episode. A little bit of a departure from what we usually do, but I, I just found the information there. It's just so worthwhile. Uh, two more quickies. Uh, number one from Atlanta at 1219. What is more important for Alzheimer's prevention? Is it diet or is it movement here? What would you say? What does the statistics bore out? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is diet and movement. Um, they're, they're both important. Now, overall, I have to say, uh, for almost every endpoint, diet is much more important than physical exercise. Keep in mind, you're taking in compounds in large quantity uh, that break apart, that infuse your circulatory system and bathe the brain in the things that you just ate. Um, the foods that you eat also influence your ability to excrete and eliminate um, toxic chemicals as well. So hands down, diet is more important than all of these things. But the reason that we want to give um, exercise a fair amount of credit is because we have hard data uh, where you'll have people who, who are physically active and you can show they, their, their cardiovascular health is not necessarily dramatically better, but their brain health sense does t- in fact tend to all right. And this is why we're doing the show today, by the way. Kelly here posted a nice note and uh, not really nice, but it, it's a touching one. She said, my dad couldn't remember my husband's name over the weekend. We've been married for 20 years. So he simply reintroduced himself to him again. And that is like incredibly touching and heartwarming. And just going through that right now, myself with uh, my wife's family, her mom has Alzheimer's disease. And um, some days we get names, some days we don't. Um, but it's it's a hard one, as you well know. Uh, again, I mean, you've been through this personally, and so yeah. let's let's end with a question from Amber here, Doctor Barnard. And Amber's question is: Do you believe that we will ever get to a point where we will be able to say that Alzheimer's disease can be prevented and reversed? I think the prevention is where we really want to focus as much as we can, because if you make a list of all the conditions you never want to have happen to you. Alzheimer's has got to be at the top of the list because when, you, when you've lost your brain function, you've really lost everything and you've lost everyone who ever mattered to you. I, I saw this in my own life where when my father, my father died about a decade ago, but in truth, for all intents and purposes, he had died years earlier because he had lost his ability to know, to know my mom and to know us and to, to feel comfortable. And his last years were really tough, not just for the family, but really tough for him as a person. So to the extent that we can prevent going down that road, that's really important. The other reason why prevention is, is more important as a focus than reversal is that the Alzheimer's disease process actually destroys brain cells. And if you look at the disease process as the years go by, the brain is actually being physically destroyed. So it's really, really a challenge to build that up. So where we're really focusing is what are the things that predict this that this may occur. Let's plug those in as much as we possibly can. Uh, if it's a medication, fair enough. But if it's something natural like a dietary intervention and exercise and other uh, factors, let's put them to work as maximally as we possibly can. And if you're at the early stages where things are just starting to sputter, but the brain cells aren't dead, if at that point we can intervene and say, okay, yes, for the past 60 or 70 years, you might not have been taking good care of yourself, are there things that we can do now to back up? Let's do that. We've learned that with hypertension. We've learned that with atherosclerosis. We've seen it with diabetes, where all of these things, once a person is in trouble, you can throw them a life ring. 
and you can pull them back. With Alzheimer's, that's exactly where the research is going now. Dean Ornish and his team have been doing some fascinating research on exactly that. People who have an early diagnosis, can we pull them back? Um, I'm very optimistic that the answer there is going to be yes. So let's, let's hopefully not let this disease run its course. Let's intervene early. All right. And you know, you want to talk about interventions. Something kind of quietly happened uh, over the uh, the last few weeks here that I thought was absolutely extraordinary. You shared this with me Monday night when we were at dinner together, and that was the U.S. Conference of Mayors has made great strides in the adoption of a plant-based diet for so many, many different reasons. Um what can you tell us about this? And can you even, is it possible to understate or, or overstate the importance, I should say, of what this proclamation actually does? This is actually just so huge. Um, as everybody knows, Eric Adams, when he was elected mayor of New York, he did not waste any time. He said, this city needs to eat in a more healthful way. And he instituted a brilliant program at the New York Health and Hospitals, biggest public hospital system in North America, huge. And you go into the hospital there and they ask you what you'd like for dinner. The, the default offering is a plant-based offering. And if you say, well, I'm not sure I want that, what else do you have? They'll, they'll offer you something else. And it's plant-based too. So you could eventually get a chicken wing out of them if you tried. But the things that they are really putting front and center are plant-based. I'm talking about vegan foods. And the payoff is huge. The patients love it. The staff loves it. They're saving money. It's been a great success, and the writing is on the wall. If we want to have not just healthy people today, but if you want to have healthy young people growing up into adulthood with good eating habits, plant-based meals have to be in their schools too. So I've got it right here. This is actually what uh, Eric Adams brought to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, and it said that cities need to invest in plant-based eating in all of these domains, and yes, U.S. Council, uh, uh, Conference of Mayors considered it, voted, and made this their policy. They said, yes, I don't care if you're in New York, you're in L.A., you're in Chicago, you're in Little Rock, wherever you may be, plant-based, way to go. And it is spot on. I have a copy of that right in front of me. Let me just read uh, a little bit of this for the exam roomies. Um, here's the adopted resolution. It says, a plant-based diet approach has promised to address chronic disease, environmental, and fiscal burdens facing cities across the nation. Exactly what you just said. Here's where it gets so exciting, though. The lead three paragraphs. Whereas our current trajectory is unsustainable with our constituents being burdened with lifestyle-related chronic diseases at record rates, with our environment at risk, and with our fiscal outlook burdened by healthcare spending driven primarily by management of lifestyle-related chronic diseases plaguing our people, and whereas these issues can be addressed through an intervention changing the food that we eat, promote, and work to make available to our constituents a plant-predominant eating pattern centered on the consumption of whole, minimally processed fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, and seeds can be beneficial. And I'm telling you, knowing that the Conference of Mayors has adopted this resolution, it goes on for pages, by the way, is just the coolest thing in the entire world to me. And so when we talk about what is tangible progress, this is a huge, 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 measurable, amazing, extraordinary step, Dr. Barnard. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing this trend 
Um, some years ago, the American Medical Association started passing resolutions saying, we need plant-based foods in hospitals. We need them in schools. We need them in food assistance programs. We've seen the dietary guidelines for Americans say, you know what? This is a healthy eating pattern, as opposed to a generation ago when people would say, well, gee, where do you get your protein? Those questions have been answered, and we're now seeing this as the solution. And now the mayors, and I got to tell you, if there's one job that is more challenging than any other, it's looking at the health conditions that are happening in urban areas really all across uh, the United States and, and around the world, for them to say, yep, I think this is where our solution is going to lie. That's huge progress and a sign of great things to come. Absolutely. And for those cynics among us, myself included a lot of times who think that money drives everything, believe you me, these resolutions spell that out. And I really am hopeful that mayors and governors around the country also will read these resolutions and listen to this because they list also specifically in here that these preventable diseases are the primary drivers, quote, of the nation's 4.1 trillion dollar annual health care spending. $4.1 trillion. And at a time when money is at a premium and we're always looking to cut and to save, this seems to be a really affordable and just complete solution to a lot of what we're facing in terms of our health challenges. And if nothing else, $4.1 trillion is going to make somebody stand up and take a close look at this. Well, my hat is off to Eric Adams for his leadership and to all the mayors for saying, this is the this is the way to go. Absolutely. And look, you know, Eric Adams, the wonderful mayor of the city of New York, and you and I last week, a week ago today, as a matter of fact, had our big exam room live and in person up in New York. And I just, I cannot thank everyone who turned out enough for showing up and supporting the show and helping us celebrate 15 million extraordinary downloads here. Um, it really was so much fun just to share the stage, Dr. Barnard, with you and Dr. Rob Osfeld and Dr. Michelle McMahon. And of course, Rip Esselstyn from Plant Strong, he was there as well. And I mean, just a sold out auditorium at the Museum of the City of New York and just such energy in the room that night. It really was just a blast, man. It was great. It was a great place. Um, but more than that, it was a great opportunity for people to share um, their experiences with these things, their questions, uh, their predictions for the future. So hats off to you, Chuck. Thank you for all you have done to bring this forward. And thank you for um, being a, a brilliant host for a really, really funny. No, oh, it was my pleasure. I, I love getting the opportunity to spend time with the exam roomies and hearing their stories and journeys back to health. And, you know, I can't wait also to meet a lot more exam roomies coming up August 10th through 12th at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine here in Washington, D.C. Uh, obviously, today we talked a lot about Alzheimer's disease. I'm sure that's going to be one of the topics that's going to be hit at the conference. In fact, the very first day we're talking about uh, food and brain function. We have several presenters on that topic. Um, we're also tackling a couple things. Uh, we're tackling the new view of protein. It's not a question of, are you getting enough? You are. It's a question of uh, what type is best for you. And the whole idea that you need meat for protein has been thrown out. We're, we're going to tackle that in a new way. And at lunchtime on the first day, actually, the people who are the innovators behind New York's uh, system of the vegan meals in their hospitals they're going to be in D.C., they're going to present their data, and they're going to cook. Their executive chef is coming down, and we are going to actually taste 
the food. That's all on day one. Uh, the rest of the conference is really, really cool. We're going to talk about tackling diabetes, tackling breast cancer, many, many other issues. We're going to have a big two-hour debate all about Wagovi and the other weight loss drugs. So uh, the, the uh, International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine this year, I think it's going to be our best ever. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that that weight loss panel, that debate. Um, I'm privileged enough you you invited me on with that. But we're going to be joined by Dr. Jamie Kane, Dr. Garth Davis, Dr. Jim Loomis, Dr. Hanna Kaliova, Dr. Steve Loam, uh, Dr. Vanita Raman. I mean, just it's going to be a really well-rounded conversation. Um, honestly, it's two hours, but I'm wondering like how we're going to be able to get all the information out because there's so much ground to cover with that one on Friday. Well, but when people when people are done, they're going to know about what these drugs do, what they don't do, what the risks are, what the benefits are, everything. And then comparing it with what's the, what is the advantage of using food and doing it in the right way. We're also going to talk about surgery and all the other issues, which are complicated and need to get a good airing. That's all going to be uh, covered in detail, but that's just one small part of a huge fun conference. And if people come for one reason, uh, one, one other reason, it's the food. And that's for a reason. We want somebody who's new to this to realize it's not just information, but actually uh, you're going to enjoy uh, the food that's going to be on your plate from now on. Absolutely. Come for the food, stay for the information, stay for the podcast. We're going to be taping episodes all throughout uh, the conference. I'm going to be downstairs right outside the conference doors doing a bunch of Instagram lives. And then also we have a podcast studio one floor up where we're going to be recording episodes that we'll release. And I know uh, also coming, uh, Senator Cory Booker will be there, Dr. Michael Greger, Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Christy Funk, uh, Dr. Andrew Freeman, who will be on the program next week. He's going to be there. Dr. Gemma Newman, my partner in crime from One Healthy World. She's going to be there. Brenda Davis, Dr. David. Ka I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. It really is a, a who's who in the world of nutrition. It's such a fun conference uh, every single year. So it's a great undertaking. But I do hope that you all get the opportunity to come by and hang out with us and really raise your health IQ. I mean, not a point or two. I mean, we're talking like this has got to be a good 10 point health IQ raising exercise here over the course of the three days. Plus CME credits are available. So pcrm.org slash ICNM to reserve your seat today, August 10th through 12th at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. Dr. Barnard, I just cannot wait, my friend. I, I'm Look, this is, I think, my sixth conference that I'll be going to. Uh, you've been there since day one. You still get as fired up as ever about this? Yeah, I, I do because... Science is always moving forward, and at ICNM is the place where people come to unveil what is new, the things that are going to be um, really influencing medical practice and, and what people need to know in the future. So it's going to really be a blast. All right, guys. Today's episode of The Exam Room Live has been powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. Our friends, you know, they support organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. So when I tell you they're doing a lot of good for a lot of the world, Believe you me, that is exactly what they're doing. So find out everything that they're up to by visiting their website right now online at GregoryRiderFund.org. That's Gregory Rider, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. And it was great, by the way, Dr. Barnard, to see Allison Mahoney um, from the Rider Fund up at the show in New York last week as well. It was fun to bring her up on stage and just give her a shout out because she has been our biggest supporter, our first supporter who's still with us on the exam room 
uh, since day one. I love her with all my heart. She really does help to make the show possible every week. Yeah, I was going to say it was so fun to see Allison again uh, at the New York event. Um, and, and Allison, if you're watching, thank you for being there. Thank you for all of your support to make to make this all happen. And thank you, Dr. Barnard, for being here today and raising our health IQs. Learned a lot about Alzheimer's, my friend. Thanks for spreading the info with us. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that this information is going to help everybody to have a little added protection against this disease. Every week, we still hear from exam roomies who say this is their first time joining us live. They didn't know where to find the show. So please write this down and set a reminder. We do it every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. We would love for you to join us there and experience the exam roomie community live and in person and also interact with our experts like Dr. Neil Barnes. And I, I want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who was able to join us this week. So much fun hanging out with you guys and helping to answer your questions and raise our health IQs together. But let's not stop there. Let's not just stop at getting together, right? Let's Let's do a favor. Let's do a solid here for the world because we know how wretched of a disease Alzheimer's can be. And we also know that the majority of people still believe that Alzheimer's is strictly genetics. It's fate that is out of their hands. But don't they also deserve to know how much power they have? Don't they deserve to know what true brain food actually is? Don't they deserve to know how much they can lower their risk of Alzheimer's disease, no matter how many other people in their family have it? So let's spread this healthy message together, right? Let's get together and get that out there. And one of the easiest ways that you can do to help make the world a healthier place and to get this information out there is simply to subscribe to the show on Spotify or follow it on Apple Podcast. And when you do that, please also leave a five-star rating because believe you me, every new subscription, every new five-star rating, it really does help to get this information out to people who just don't have a clue yet. And we want to open their eyes and share this wealth of powerful information with them. And I also wanna say thank you, by the way, to an exam roomie by the name of Susan for doing that recently. She followed on Apple Podcasts, left a five-star rating, and also this nice review. I want to share this with you guys. It was so nice. It absolutely made my morning. Susan writes, this is a great podcast for anyone curious about how to live healthier. It keeps me engaged and entertained while I hear useful tips in each episode. The guests are fascinating and the pace is excellent. Chuck has a captivating energy and enthusiasm, and this show energizes me and is loaded with evidence-based useful information that I can apply in my daily life. I keep coming back to this one for a big dose of information with a lot of entertainment. Well, Susan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. But I'll tell you what, it's not about me. I'm just a curious guy with a limitless appetite for health. Like I'm sure you who is listening is much the same way. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to the show, right? And so the goal really is just to ask questions that I think that you and the other exam roomies will be curious about. And hopefully, hopefully we do a good job of that. 
And as for today's episode, it is like Dr. Barnard. For me, it's also a personal journey. And like so many other families, Alzheimer's has just devastated mine, as well as my wife's. You know, Julie has slowly been losing her mom for about five or six years now, and it's hard. Every day is hard, but I will tell you this. What I have witnessed more than possibly anything else, what makes the difference, it's just not being forgotten, not forgetting about that person. Because although Julie's mom now is in a nursing home, a memory care facility, Julie still goes there every single day and spends hours with her mom. And she's kind of become the whisperer in that sense. And she's found a way through unique and novel forms of communication to get through, even though it can become a little bit more challenging every single day to do that. Julie still has somehow always been able to find her way to get through to her mom. It's really fascinating and to see how her mom's spirits have been buoyed every single time she walks through the door. It is amazing. She still lights up even on her worst days. It's really, really, really heartwarming to see this. And the other interesting thing to, to note, perhaps from a more clinical perspective, is that her mom's Cognitive decline seems to have slowed somewhat since she has moved up here closer toward us and, and gotten into this memory care facility. And I think that having that daily interaction seems to be the best medicine of all for Shelby. It's actually really good for both of them. I mean, these two have been thick as thieves their entire life. So to have them get the opportunity to continue to interact in a really meaningful and heartwarming way, it's truly a, a privilege to be able to watch this. And I am just in awe of what my wife is able to do with her mom. It is just the most incredible thing. I mean, seriously, I mean, like it almost brings me to tears when I think about it. Really, honest to goodness. And hopefully, if Alzheimer's affects your family as well, this is something to keep in mind is to always, even though the communication may change and the words may not come as easily as they once did, to still keep the conversation going. Just find, and just find a way to do it. Just find a way to do it. Okay. Let's wrap up today with one more nutrition tip that is related to Alzheimer's. And this one is actually from our Alzheimer's care sheet that you can find on pcrm.org slash Alzheimer's. And kind of skirts both worlds here for me, both in terms of weight loss and Alzheimer's. And this particular fact is about total calorie consumption and Alzheimer's disease. And from the sheet now, I will read. It says, quote, eating fewer total calories per day may also benefit brain function. For example, certain populations in China and Japan have low average daily caloric intakes, somewhere around 1,600 to 2,000 calories a day. And they also have lower rates of Alzheimer's disease compared to people in the United States and Western Europe who typically consume more than 2,000 calories a day. 
A 2002 study of elderly Americans followed for four years found that compared to those consuming the fewest calories, those consuming the most had an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. Goes on to say that to decrease caloric intake, focus on nutrient-dense foods that are naturally low in calories. These include fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, peas, and lentils. And that information is spot on. Believe you me, it is spot on. And again, as a former big guy, I love the fact that you can still eat a low-calorie diet and not be hungry. I mean, that is a beautiful thing. You can eat a ton of these healthy whole foods and still keep your calories low. It is a gorgeous thing, just a thing of beauty. I mean, my goodness gracious, who doesn't want to get healthy and stay full at the same time? What's the point of going on a quote unquote diet when you're always going to be hungry? That's not fun. That's not sustainable. And it's certainly not nourishing. But this, my friend, is the total package. And that is why I stand up on the soapbox twice a week, every week to tell you guys that plants are the ticket. I'll tell you what, speaking of tickets, don't forget to get yours for the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine in Washington, D.C. at the Grand Hyatt. Dr. Bardard and I were talking a little bit about that here on the program today. That's coming up August 10th through 12th, so reserve your seat. Would love to see you there. I'm trying also to arrange a smoothie party at my favorite spot called Fruitive, which is right across the street from the hotel where the conference is going to be. So I hope to see you there. If you do join up, Hit me up, send me a message on Twitter, Instagram, threads, wherever, at Chuck Carroll, WLC, across the board. So sign up, get your ticket for the conference, pcrm.org slash ICNM. Let me know that you're coming, and then we'll try to arrange a little smoothie party while we're there. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and raising our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. 